The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Criminals aren't complicated, Alfred. We just need to figure out what he's after. With respect, Master Wayne, perhaps this is a man you don't fully understand either. A long time ago, I was in Burma. My friends and I were working for the local government. They were trying to buy the loyalty of tribal leaders by bribing them with precious stones. But their caravans were being raided in a forest north of Rangoon by a bandit. So we went looking for the stones. But in six months, we never met anyone who traded with him. One day, I saw a child playing with a ruby the size of a tangerine. The bandit had been throwing them away. So why steal them? Well, because he thought it was good sport, because some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn. That bandit in the forest in Burma. Did you catch him? Yes. How? We burned the forest down. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, April 25th, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Paul McKeever. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. Oh, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, and color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be an interesting one for you today where 519-661-3600 is a number you can always call to join in on the conversation. In the second half of the show, I'm going to be making a universal discovery, Paul. <laughs> I've talked to you a bit about it before, but you don't even know where I'm going with it yet. I know it's going to be a, as much a surprise to you as it will be to me. Excellent. I'm going to be talking about causality and the continuant. Uh, basic nature of the universe. And of course, for the first half of the program, we're going to be looking at an issue that is on everybody's mind, unlike the one I just talked about, and that is Islamic terrorism, identifying the problem, and what can we do to prevent that problem? And Paul, I understand you've been giving this some serious thought lately. Yeah. Well, you know, Bob, on, on April 15, 2013, two Muslim men bombed the finish line of the Boston Marathon, mm -hmm. killing some and maiming many. The attack came just weeks after reports that the firebombing of an Algerian gas plant was planned or carried out by four young Muslim men <coughs> pardon me, from London, Ontario. The media and our politicians have dealt with such events as though terrorism itself is the problem. Islam leads to terrorism, say some. Terrorism gives a bad name to Islam, says others. But is, is terrorism the essential issue? Or does the focus on terrorism distract from the essential issue facing North America in particular and the world in general? Well, that's an interesting question. Right. Since the events of 9-11, many non-Muslims in North America commonly have asked why they rarely see Muslims condemning Islamic terrorism. They fear that the silence of most Muslims implies support for Islam Islamic terrorism. Support for terrorism, they often conclude, is inherent in Islam itself, and so they condemn Islam and the Quran. Muslims do appear to be listening, though, and in increasing numbers they are speaking out against Islamic terrorism. But among the Muslims who are speaking out, there is a deep divide that helps to identify the essential issue 
behind the terrorist attacks, and that helps to explain the silence of so many Muslims. In recent weeks, outspoken Muslims Salim Mansour and Tariq Fatah, probably among others, have condemned Islamic radicals, religious leaders, university campus groups and mosques on talk radio in London, Ontario. In response, some of the alleged radical Muslims have spoken out on talk, talk radio against Mansour and Fatah and have made a point of saying that they are opposed to terrorism too. But for those listening carefully, one important distinction appears between Mansour and Fatah on the one hand and the alleged radicals on the other. Mansour and Fatah speak out not only against Islamic terrorism, but also against Sharia law. They advocate the separation of church and state. In contrast, the alleged radicals condemn terrorism, but say nothing to condemn Sharia law and the theocratic state that is the aim of Islamic terrorism. The animosity between the two groups of Muslims is palpable, even though both sides might truly oppose terrorism, and the severity of that animosity shows that something much more important than terrorism is the source of the dispute. I submit to you that terrorism is not the essential issue. It rarely is. Terrorizing people is a means to an end, no matter what one's end might be. It is doubtful that even terrorists have paralyzing fear as their intended end state for humanity. In the case of Islam, the terrorists clearly believe that only, as, only Allah's law, Sharia, should prevail on earth. Their goal, their end, is Islamic theocracy a government for the whole world that gets its authority, unlimited authority, from Allah. Their means is to subject people to constant terror in the hope that the terrorized people will appease the terrorists so as to bring their painful fear to an end. The Islamic terrorist message to the public is simple. Quote, Let me have Islamic theocracy or I'll make sure that you continue to live in fear. The price of peace is the end of democracy and the submission to the will of Allah. Unquote. That's not a particular quote of a particular person, no. Bob, but that's the general message. Well, it's the piece of submission, isn't it? Yes. Now, one can oppose terrorism without opposing the ultimate goal of the terrorist. For example, Unabomber Ted Kaczynski terrorized Americans in an attempt to turn them against industrialization. Most environmentalists today would oppose terrorism, but I suspect that a healthy majority of them would share the Unabomber's goal of a disindustrialized society. Oh, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. The obverse is also true. If you give it some honest thought, terrorism is not always considered to be wrong. Consider a couple examples. In the opening of the war in Iraq, U.S. forces employed what is known as shock and awe, which Wikipedia describes as the use of overwhelming power, dominant battlefield awareness, dominant maneuvers, and spectacular displays of force to paralyze an adversary's perception of the battlefield and destroy its will to fight. Critics of shock and awe have reportedly called it a form of terrorism, and I think they're correct in that identification. But I think that those who think that shock and awe has no place in defeating a legitimate enemy are engaging in moral subjectivism and are essentially showing compassion for the villain at the expense of his victims. Or to cite an example from popular fiction, consider Quentin Tarantino's movie Inglorious Bastards, a film which a small, in, a, in which a small band of allies strike terror into the hearts of German army of the German army with attacks brutally carried out against Nazi soldiers behind enemy lines, all to intimidate and paralyze the German military and to reduce the effectiveness of resistance to the ends of the Allies. Who, except a sympathizer with evil, would condemn the bastards, that's their name, for undermining a Nazi's will to fight? The point is this. Terrorism, the inculcation of fear by acts of destruction, is like a gun. It can be used, 
against evil persons to achieve a good end, or against good persons to achieve an evil end. However, to the same extent, elections can be a tool of good or a tool of evil. Elections were developed as a defense against abuse of governmental power. Elections are a tool originally designed to ensure that nobody exercising the power to make or enforce laws uses that power to engage in the very crimes that governments are created to defeat. But like terrorism or guns, an election can be used for good ends or for evil ones. An election can be used by theocrats to defeat democracy without resort to terrorism. If a sufficient number of voters wants a government that fancies itself the hand of a law, if they want the government to enforce Sharia on, the, on behalf of a law, then an election is a tool for the elimination of democracy. When peaceful theocrats and their enablers are the biggest voting bloc, elections are a weapon in the service of tyranny and evil, not of freedom and good. The point is this. Many Muslims have come to Canada precisely so as to escape terrorism. Yet many of those who oppose Islamic terrorism would be quite comfortable with and supportive of the Islamic theocracy that Islamic terrorists aim to achieve if it were achieved by some means other than terrorism, like an election. Witness as evidence the elections that have been brought by, uh, uh, sorry, brought theocrats to power in Africa. This leaves some Muslims in an awkward position. If they speak out against a Muslim who has committed a terrorist act to gain uh, what they see as a noble goal, Islamic theocracy, they might falsely appear to oppose the noble goal itself. They might leave the mistaken impression that they oppose Allah and the prevalence of Sharia on the face of the entire earth, or the entire face of the earth. Muslims like Mansur and Fatah know this. They harbor no illusion that all Islamic theocrats support terrorism as a means to achieve theocracy. But their enemies, both Islamic and non-Islamic, want us all to believe that critics of Islam are trying to paint all Muslims as pro-terrorist. Mansur and Fatah's enemies, both Islamic and non-Islamic, want you to believe that the opponents of radical Islam are racists, bigots, and haters. They want to discredit secular Muslims, like Mansur and Fatah, precisely because they are pro-secular and anti-theocratic. You will have noticed that I referred to both Islamic and non-Islamic opponents of Mansur and Fatah, and that's because those who sympathize with the theocratic ends of the Islamic terrorists are not all Muslims. Theocrats can also be found among members of other religions, including various Christians. Their impact on democracy has been seen for decades in the form of liquor and cannabis prohibition, laws against opening retail stores on Sundays and other Christian holy days, whereas the, uh, the Islamic theocrat would have his government punish a woman for being raped, a Christian theocrat would have a government punish her for aborting the pregnancy that results from the rape. In the wake of any given act of Islamic terrorism, when anyone in the debate gets too close to identifying theocracy as the essential problem to be solved, theocrats of every religious stripe will stand shoulder to shoulder with Islamic theocrats, adding their voice to the refrain that Islam is a religion of peace and calling upon public institutions to accommodate such things as the construction of Islamic prayer rooms in our public schools. Radical Islamists will return the favor, condemning a Jewish judge for removing a Christmas tree from the lobby of a courthouse, knowing that that precedent will allow him to construct a crescent symbol in that very same court lobby. Mm -hmm. They will return the favor, calling for the continuation of the reading of the Lord's Prayer as part of the official opening of the ceremony of the Ontario Legislature, knowing that it would also lead to prayers to Allah being added to the official ceremony, which it did. And that's what's going on now. Right. To the religious radical of every stripe, public rejection or condemnation of any religion or calls for the separation of church and state pose a threat to their own dream of one country under God. But don't take my word for it. 
Just read the preamble to the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It reads in part, quote, Whereas Canada is founded upon the principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. The supremacy of God language was reportedly the result of political pressure exerted not by hardcore Islamists, but by the Christian Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. Perhaps not surprisingly, the supremacy of God clause was propounded by a conservative MP. The Liberal Prime Minister of the time, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, was quoted in the Globe and Mail as saying that he thought it, quote, strange, so long after the Middle Ages, that some politicians felt obliged to mention God in a constitution, which is, after all, a secular and not a spiritual document. Now, that came from a fellow, by the way, who was, you know, trained in, yeah. in, by the Jesuits. So what should we take away from the current situation when deciding how to defend democracy and to protect the freedom of individuals in this country? Well, one, the essential problem is not a matter of Muslims versus non-Muslims. Just as many Muslims are theocrats, many non-Muslims are theocrats. In our legislatures and city council chambers, prayers to God are often a part of the official opening ceremony each day, and those prayers are made a part of the official ceremony so as to create acceptance of the notion that government takes its lead from the whims and laws of God. No God in particular, and any God in general. As evidence, consider that for the past few years, the Ontario legislature has been opening its proceedings each day with prayers to numerous gods, including, as I said before, Allah. Numerous religions are laying claim to the power of the state. In its essentials, this is two, theocracy does not differ from any other kind of totalitarianism. Unlimited authority is unlimited authority, whether it is alleged to be conferred upon government by God or alleged to be conferred upon government by the governed. To the person unjustly shot by the police or unjustly imprisoned or expropriated for smoking a joint or opening one store on a statutory holiday, it does not really matter whether the government's injustice is carried out in the name of a god or in the name of the people. The point is that we already suffer from undemocratic laws and governance. We already have a purported government that fancies itself to have authority to do whatever the governed would be imprisoned for doing. And therefore, if we are successful in ending Islamic terrorism, that alone will not preserve democracy. It will only ensure that totalitarianism serves the purposes of some other religious or non-religious group. At the end of the day, the challenge we all face is not to preserve democracy, but to establish it. Interesting. So, in other words, you're demoralizing the terrorism aspect and moralizing the purpose behind it. It's the end that mm -hmm. we must not uh, take our eyes from. It's not the means. Time for a break? Absolutely. Okay, we'll be back right after this. I am Oz, the great and powerful. The beneficent Oz has every intention of granting your requests. What's that? What do you say? Huh? What do you say? But first, you must prove yourselves worthy by performing a very small task. Bring me the broomstick of the Witch of the West. But, 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 but if we do that, we'll have to kill her to get it. Bring me her broomstick, and I'll grant your requests. Now go. She did. You killed her. Hail to Dorothy, the Wicked Witch is dead! Hail! Hail to Dorothy, the Wicked Witch is dead! Can I believe my eyes? Why have you come back? Please, sir, we've done what you told us. We've brought you the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West. So we'd like you to keep your promise to us, if you please, sir. Oh, 
Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. The great and past has spoken. Who are you? Oh, I, I, I am the great and powerful Wizard of Oz. You are? Uh, I yes. don't believe you. No, I'm afraid it's true. There's no other wizard except me. You're a very bad man. Oh, no, my dear. I, I'm a very good man. I'm just a very bad wizard. Well, what about the heart that you promised Tin Man? Well, and the courage that you promised Cowardly Lion? Well, I'm Scarecrow's brain. Why, anybody can have a brain. That's a very mediocre commodity. Every pusillanimous creature that crawls on the earth or slinks through slimy seas has a brain. Back where I come from, we have universities, seats of great learning, where men go to become great thinkers. And when they come out, they think deep thoughts and with no more brains than you have. But they have one thing you haven't got, a diploma. Therefore, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the Universitatis Committeatum e Pluribus Unum, I hereby confer upon you the honorary degree of THD. <laughs> Ph.D.? Yeah, that's Doctor of Thinkology. The sum of the square roots of any two sides of an isosceles triangle is equal to the square root of the remaining side. Oh, joy! Rapture! I've got a brain! They just called me. What's going on? He said, I'm probably going to die tonight. What? Hello there. I was just coming in to check on her. You must be Martha's son. What do you mean she's going to die tonight? It does not look very good. She suffered a major heart attack. Her heart is very weak. Her pulse is not very strong. Her blood pressure is dropping rapidly. And she will probably suffer the fatal heart attack sometime tonight. Yes. Still going to die. This is it, Mark. A few more hours like this, and then oh, an eternity of nothingness. Oh, so, oh, so frightened. favorite place in the whole world and everyone you've ever loved and who's ever loved you will be there and you'll be young again you can run and jump like you used to and dance you used to dance there's no pain It's a mansion. And it lasts for an eternity. An eternity, Mum. <laughs> and that, of course, was Ricky Gervais in The Invention of Lying.
before that, of course, the timeless Wizard of Oz. Yeah, yeah you know, Bob, there's no question that force must be used against those who engage in Islamic terrorism. All Canadians, whether Muslim or non-Muslim, must share tips with the police. And our police are right to use force, lethal force if necessary, to, engage, or sorry, to ensure that terrorists meet with the full weight of justice for their crimes. But if we want to prevent acts of Islamic terror in the first place, we cannot do so by way of policing. To prevent acts of Islamic terror in the first place, we must use the tools best suited to addressing not the terrorists' means, but their motivation, their ends. We must wage an intellectual war against the ideas that lead too many people to desire theocracy. We must expose myth to be myth and lies to be lies. We must show that the false has no value, and we must arm every individual with the power to identify and evaluate the true. Moreover, we must recognize that children and young adults in Canada are the ones being targeted by theocrats. Just as we have laws against the mutilation of children's genitals, if we want to have and to continue to have a free and democratic society, we must become willing to defend children and young adults against the anti-democratic, anti-freedom mutilation of their minds. There are at least two fronts on which such a defense can be mounted. The first is our schools. The disturbing trend at present is away from facts and values and toward uncertainty and moral equivocation. The alleged purpose of so-called accommodation reforms currently underway in our schools is to ensure that no child is made to feel unwelcome and that no child is bullied. I think those goals are absolutely good and important. But the accommodation reforms will not achieve those goals, goals and, and more to the point, the accommodation reforms are not really intended as a means to those goals. That's the cover story. Mm -hmm. The goal that that accommodation reform or those reforms are actually intended to serve is cultural Marxism. Just as Toronto's so-called Afrocentric school is intended to make students view and value themselves first and foremost as part of a collective defined by race, with every Islamic prayer room set up for Muslim students in a public or Catholic school, we are inculcating a belief that children are, first and foremost, members of a collective defined by their religion. But more to the point, we are failing to arm students with the thinking skills they need to identify the fact that waging terroristic or electoral war on democracy is not a path to an eternity of effortless bliss. There are ample opportunities for parents to teach their children that there is a magic man in the sky with unlimited powers who wants us all to surrender our judgment and instead obey his will in exchange for an afterlife of eternal bliss. If we are to have any success in preventing Islamic terrorism, our schools must be places where children are armed with the thinking skills necessary to distinguish falsehoods and arbitrary claims from truths. If we are to have any success in preventing Islamic terrorism, our schools must be places that encourage children to embrace this life and to pursue their own happiness in it. Our goal, especially if in respect of children of new Canadians, must be to build mutual respect not through the highlighting of differences, but through the discovery of rational, demonstrably true, pro-democracy beliefs and values. And to that end, we could all do no worse, and certainly no better, than to investigate the pros and cons of imposing, as a condition of immigration, the requirement that children of immigrants must attend schools where they will, they will be assimilated into Western culture, and not schools that preach against reason, against the pursuit of one's own happiness, or against democracy. Those who wish to come to Canada, to, uh, but to here educate their children in a school that teaches them to doubt reason, to reject earthly happiness, and to reject democracy, should be told that they're not welcome. The second front 
is one that must be formed and championed by the young. It is no mistake that the young are the ones so often engaged in terrorist activity. A young person tends to desire greatness. They want to stand out, to be noticed, and to be remembered. And for many, they want that greatness to be found in their character and in their integrity. The young men who exploded bombs at the Boston Marathon lacked a lot of things. They lacked a grasp of the facts of reality. They lacked a willingness to think for themselves. They lacked a desire to pursue their own happiness on this earth in this life. But they did not lack a philosophy, and most importantly, they did not lack integrity. Their belief in an afterlife was unrivaled. Their faith to what they believed was the will of Allah was clear. Their obedience to that will was perfect. In their embrace of a philosophy of unreality, irrationality, and self-sacrificial obedience, they had perfect fidelity and integrity. An integrity clearly not shared by the people who encouraged them to do these things, but who still roam the earth happily today. Yes, that's the t tragedy of it, isn't right. it? We must all reach out to the integrity of the youth. We must give them a path to greatness. We must show them how to be noticed and to be remembered. We must reveal to them a way of thinking and of life, which when followed with the integrity of which they are so very capable, will allow them to be true heroes rather than villains. They could do no better than read the works of Ayn Rand, but for those who never will, let me provide you, at the very least, with Ten Commandments for the Hero. 1. Cast your eyes not to an imaginary heaven, but to earth. 2. Trust your senses. They are your only tool of evidence collection, and there is no evidence that cannot be sensed. 3. Believe nothing for which ultimately there exists no physical evidence. 4. Believe nothing that is illogical. 5. Trust the efficacy of your rational faculty. There is no evidence of its inefficacy. 6. Let your life here on earth be the standard by which you judge. By which you judge things to be right and wrong. By which you judge things to be better or worse. 7. Pursue your own happiness on this earth, in this life. It's the only one you get. 8. Pursue your happiness by rational, peaceful means. 9. Take no other individual's life, liberty, or property without his or her consent. And 10. Thou shalt read Ayn Rand. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for me, Bob. Excellent, Paul. It's funny because a lot of what you said there in the world of the practical reality kind of segues into a lot of what I'll be talking about more on a theoretical basis. And uh, something that we got into a little while ago got me into this whole thing. And boy, if you want to hurt your head, uh, you're going to love what we're going to get into. <laughs> I've still on. got a headache over <laughs> all of this. But we'll return right after this and have a very radical change in topic when we return. 24 hours ago, Mark Bellison was just your typical nobody writer. Today, people are saying he has new information about what happens after you die. I guess you heard about the stuff that I told my mum the other night. That's why you're here. I know some things, some very important things about what happens to you after you die. Number one, there is a man in the sky who controls everything. Number two. Whoa, 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 whoa. Can we see him? No. Number two. When you die, you don't disappear into an eternity of nothingness. Instead, you go to a really great place. Oh. 
Number three, in that place, everyone will get a mansion. <clears throat> Number four, when you die, all the people you love will be there. There will be free ice cream for everyone, all day and all night. If you do bad things, you won't get to go to this great place when you die. Where will you go? A, a, a terrible place, the worst place imaginable. What constitutes a bad thing? Uh, awful crimes, rape, murder, things like that. Is punching someone bad? Yes. What if they're trying to hurt you? Well, then it's fine. If I do just one bad thing, do I go to that bad place? No. You get three chances. Three bad things and you're out. Like baseball. Sort of. Okay, number nine. The man in the sky who controls everything decides if you go to the good place or the bad place. He also decides who lives and who dies. Does he cause natural disasters? Yes. Oh. Did he cause my mom to get cancer? Yes. Did he cause that tree to land on my car last week? Yeah. Did he kill my dad with that heart attack? Yeah. I say f the man that lives in the sky. Wait, wait, listen. The man who lives in the sky and controls everything is also responsible for all the good stuff that happens. He's the guy that saved my life on that fishing trip when the boat capsized? Yes. Did he capsize the boat? Yeah. He killed my grandmother and left me those millions of dollars? You bet, yes. So he's the one who cured my mom's cancer? Yeah. So he's, he's kind of a good guy, but he's also kind of a prick, too. Yeah. Right, but check this out, okay? Number 10. Even if the man in the sky does bad stuff to you, he makes up for it by giving you an eternity of good stuff after you die. As long as you don't do any of that bad stuff that you mentioned, right? Yeah, of course. So it's kind of a test. Yeah. How do you know all these things? Because the man in the sky told me. Come in. I wanted to stop by and see how Ian was doing. We're doing fine. I was just about to get him his supper. Do you want your supper now, too? Um, no, Ian. But thank you for the invitation. You're welcome. Have you ever played with puppies? They had a litter today in the nursery. No, Ian. I, I don't think I've played with puppies. You should come to the nursery while the puppies are still there. Perhaps later. Ow! Mom! Oh. My face is wet. Is that better, sweetheart? Everything's going to be fine. He allowed himself to be burned. Mm -hmm. For the experience. Who is he? Why is he here? What does he want? Well, why is he here and what does he want? He wants to acquire knowledge yes. by direct experience and not through observation alone. And that's our starting point today, Paul. A few weeks ago, Robert Vaughn and I were discussing perception and feelings and emotions and whether we could in any way trust them to give us an accurate and true picture of our environment. Mm -hmm. And of course, we concluded that you could. 
But in the course of preparing for that show, I ran into some very interesting ideas by the Scottish philosopher John McMurray, which I'll get into as deeply as I can later in the next segment of the show. But at first I couldn't believe what I was reading, and I thought maybe I was reading it wrong, but it turns out I wasn't. In short, he makes the case that our views of cause and effect are incorrect when, when discussed within the theoretical realm. Okay. What I read I found a bit mind-boggling for a couple of reasons. One, it was an alien way of me to, you know, for me to think about it. Two, he's very convincing. And three, I've been confronted with this idea in the past but kind of dismissed it. Or maybe I didn't take it too seriously. I remember sitting right here in this room, Professor Christopher Essex, who appeared on our show not too long after those collider experiments where they were oh, looking yeah. for the God particle, remember that? Yeah. Suggested something very similar to me. But, you know, I remember looking at him, and he had this smile on his face when he said it that kind of suggested maybe he was kidding or maybe he's trying to play some kind of mind game with me. So, like, I kind of, you know, walked around so, it a bit. So I'm thinking, geez, no cause and effect? That, that, that just doesn't make sense. But since in the past, McMurray's ideas have always pointed me in the right direction, I chose to make the effort to wrap my head around this suggestion a bit more while trying to avoid that usual ache that accompanies that long chain of logic, <laughs> and I hate to say it, the chain of cause and effect that makes an argument, right? Yeah. So pardon my initial skepticism. Now, I want to say from the outset that I'm not trying to present some kind of great philosophical epiphany here, even though maybe I've, I've arrived at one or two. I'm only going on an exploratory mission, and I'm just dragging the rest of you along with me just, you know, for the ride. Misery loves company, as they say. <laughs> <laughs> but our goal here is simply to increase our understanding of and appreciation of the very nature of existence and the universe we live in at a very basic level. We're getting to metaphysics now. Now, of course, cause and effect is one of the fundamental principles behind all our codes of morality, of justice, and quite frankly, just plain common sense. Mm -hmm. However, even I, a great believer in cause and effect, have had no problem believing that there is no first cause, that existence exists, and that non-existence is a non-existent, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So go figure. And I, it was not a really resolved contradiction. So before completely taking in McMurray's reasoning, I thought I should check out what other people might be saying on the subject, or even if it's a subject at all, I wasn't too sure. And within the scientific community, right? Yeah. Well, surprise, surprise, there's all kinds of discussion out there on this theme, and philosophic community too, which I haven't had yet time to get into, into, into a great way, but I did get started. So I'm putting a number of these ideas on the table before we draw any conclusions, if that's possible. Robert Vaughn was among the first to send me a link to a 2011 Free Minds conference in Anaheim, California, presented by philosophy professor David Kelly of the Atlas Society. You know, they're the bad boys within objectivist circles, <laughs> and who is also author of uh, Evidence of the Senses, where he directly addresses the issue of causality in a very similar way that McMurray was getting into, but didn't really go to that point. And I'll try to, to summarize it as best I can here, because time is always working against us here. And he basically says, you know, our knowledge of the world and our ability to act in it depends on our grasp of causal relationships among things, the way they act and interact. But how do we identify cause and effect? Where does such knowledge begin? This is a topic in epistemology, and the topic is the perception of causality. The perception of action is always interesting to a philosopher, he says, or to an epistemologist. So the question is, do we perceive causality. 
Obviously, the ability to detect action and motion and change, very key words, by the way, of any kind in our environment is crucial to the survival of any animal that has the ability of conscious perceptual awareness. Mm -hmm. Kelly then refers to David Hume, quote, the arch-skeptic. Hume argued that there are no necessary connections among events. The regularities that we observe, in effect, in Hume's view, amount to a kind of metaphysical coincidence. If you were seeing fire for the first time, so all you had available to your senses is the visible color and flame, could you tell that it would burn you if you put your hand in it? No, says Hume. The cause and effect are just distinct things. Kind of reminds us of that clip we just heard sure, coming in. Again, yeah. Hume argues that causality is not justified by anything we can see in reality, so it must be imposed on what we perceive by a mental habit, by an association, right? We see things happening, so we expect them to happen again. Mm -hmm. Co a cognitive thing. Yeah, yeah, it's a subjective layer that's imposed on what we actually observe. Now, of course, Kelly rejects this point of view. He mm -hmm. accuses Hume of operating on an assumption that he calls sensationalism. Personally, I think he's just confusing metaphysics with epistemology, but that's another issue. And the doctrine, and, and sensationalism is the doctrine that sensations are the starting point of all awareness, and that our perception of objects as entities are constructed from a series of intrinsically isolated sensations which are put together by some mental process of association. Okay. No, says Kelly. We perceive motion and action as continuous, continuous processes, not in terms of isolated snapshots. Quote, perception is the direct awareness of discriminated entities. It's essentially discriminating things from their surrounding uh, environment, you know, mm -hmm. as entities. This is the basis for the law of identity, that everything is something, and that something is its nature. It is what it is. The law of causality is a fully abstract statement. It applies to everything that exists, past, present, and future. Perception is not abstract, says Kelly, and this is why you can count on it for being the foundation of abstract right. knowledge. Isn't that interesting? Sure. Actions exist only as features of an entity. That's why we can be sure that every event has a cause, because events are not self-subsistent existing things. The essence of causality is dependence on the nature of the things that act. In short, concludes Kelly, the law of causality is the law of identity applied to action. Right. And that's the, that's the objectivist. Right. And action is what J uh, John McMurray's all about, which we'll get into in the next quarter. Mm -hmm. And finally, asks Kelly, how does the law of causality apply to the existence of the universe? It doesn't, he says. The universe is everything that exists. Causality is a feature of things ex that exist, so the universe is not an event for which we have to provide a notion of a cause. And the universe is not literally a thing. We can only refer to it as the totality of things. So to close off our starting, startling conclusion for this segment of the show, we've just demonstrated that we, what we call the universe does not even exist as an entity or as a thing. Now, here's a punchline. If all that existed was a chair, then that chair would be the universe. If all that existed was two chairs, then those two chairs would be the entire universe. There would be no universe inside which the chairs would be. They are the universe. Right. So we know that there is a sun, we know there's planets, the stars, galaxies, black holes, comets, elements, people, and Bob Metz and Paul McKeever and CHRW Radio and all our listeners. 
Paul, we're not inside the universe. We are the universe. Nice. Which is why there is no inside or outside or first cause relating to the universe, an entity that does not even exist as a distinguishable entity from anything else. Right. Right? Now, if that doesn't fry your brain as you attempt to wrap your head around that conclusion, we shall now proceed to scramble that brain of yours <laughs> with the idea that the law of causality is not what most of us think it is. John McMurray on causality and the continuant when we return after these sound bites from two of my favorite Star Trek episodes. Back after this. I am detecting no temporal anomalies in this system. Perhaps we should attempt to pinpoint the exact moment when events became discontinuous. Do you remember the first change? I was in sickbay. Dr. Crusher told me I had a concussion, but I do not remember that happening. Think back. Are you certain that was the very first change? Before. Yes. As I was in engineering, I felt a wave of dizziness, and when I looked up, you and Commander LaForge were on the opposite side of the room, and Captain Picard was gone. I thought I had blacked out for a moment and had not observed your movements. And at my birthday party, the cake was chocolate, and then it was yellow. And Commander Riker told me Captain Picard was not going to attend, and then suddenly he was there. Hmm. We should try to find the commonalities in these events. Who were the people you were with? Everyone was at my birthday party. Then I was with Councilor Troy. Then Commander LaForge came in. Jordy. Jordy was present at all three locations. And he was near me in each case just before I noticed the differences. There has to be a connection. It is possible. something of a minor mystery on my hands. A minor mystery? That seems to be a recurring phrase these days. Oh. Diamedian Scarlet Moss. I didn't know you were an ethnobotanist. It's a hobby. You've got a good crop here. As I recall, it's not easy to cultivate. That's just it. I started these spores right before we were all knocked unconscious by the wormhole. You said we were unconscious for 30 seconds? Correct. Then why do these show a full day's growth? Perhaps you've got some sort of fast growth strain here. Each of these incubators was set with spores from completely different sources in the Diomidian system. I have a dozen more in the lab. Perhaps something extraordinary happened to one of them, but not to all of them. Doctor, we were not unconscious for a whole day. Everything on board indicates that we were out for 30 seconds. The ship's chronometer, the computer, everything, Doctor, including commanded data. Jean-Luc, I'm telling you, this is over 24 hours of growth. Ooh, scary stuff. <laughs> you know, we all know that every action causes a reaction and that every event has a cause cause and effect. It's the law of nature, right? 
Well, maybe not. At least that's what John McMurray suggests. It's definitely a law for human beings, but perhaps not for Mother Nature herself. That might be yet another mistake in the way we think about the universe, or rather, not the universe, but the entities that constitute the universe, right? Because we're thinking about it that way. Sure. Because we're human beings, though, when we observe and study non-human objects in nature, we anthropomorphize our observations. And it's amazing how deeply we do this. I wasn't aware of it until, yeah, you know, it's, it's amazing. We yeah. do it in so many subtle ways that we, we, aren't, we, we aren't even aware of it right away. And this can lead us to a number of dead ends in our effort to understand, understanding being a human quality, the very nature of the universe and of existence itself, because these are purely metaphysical issues, not organic. So let's begin with a few definitions. These are the definitions that McMurray himself uses, and this helps to distinguish things. When he refers to action, he says, action in general can be defined only as activity informed by knowledge. Actions have reasons, not causes. All actions are caused by agents. And an agent is something or someone who possesses knowledge. An event, on the other hand, is a change which cannot be referred to as an agent as its source. The idea of an event is the idea of an action from which the element of knowledge has been excluded. In the sense that knowledge does not determine that action or event, right? Mm -hmm. So events have causes, not reasons. Since a distinction of act and event is a principle of ultimate or metaphysical classification, we must recognize that the distinction between reason and cause is an absolute distinction so that no act can have a cause and no event a reason. It's the other way around. As John McMurray emphasizes, though, in his book, The Self is Agent, so long as the use of the notion of cause falls within action, again, action being that informed by knowledge, right? And so has a practical reference, it's, it is meaningful and indispensable. For in such cases, it refers to a negative activity which falls within the positive activity of an actual agent. When, however, we are concerned with purely theoretical constructions, the term cause becomes a source of embarrassment. Scientific theory, therefore, seeks to replace it by a less objectionable notion. And that less objectionable notion is the idea of natural law. Yeah. Instead of inquiring for the cause of an event, we ask for a law in accordance with what happens, right? A property of the universe. This idea of a law of nature is, of course, anthropomorphic, in the bad sense of the term, argues McMurray. A law is, in general... A, a prescription which an agent issues for the actions of another agent, right? <laughs> right? And since it, the other is an agent, he can choose to disregard the law. Yeah. Doesn't have to obey it. Or in other words, you know, what he's saying is people can choose to disobey laws. Now, on the other hand, the law of nature is said not to be prescriptive, but descriptive. Strictly speaking, it's not a law at all. Right. The notion of natural law rests upon the concept of the other as continuant. So let's consi con consider the notion of what the continuant is. To continue is to remain unchanged throughout a period of time. Continuance, then, is the character of having a being in time that does not alter. And the continuant is that which persists without change. The movement of a particle, for example, in empty space is an instance of simple continuance. But all continuance is not this simple. The movement of another particle with a constant acceleration, as defined, for instance, by Newton's law of gravitation, is equally an instance of continuance. But here, the change is in velocity, 
is not in the velocity, sorry, but in the rate of change of velocity, right? That's what's changing. So in his first example, we see a particle in space moving at a steady, unchanging rate of speed, and that's called continuance. In his second example, the particle's changing its absolute speed every second, but it's doing that at an unchanging rate of acceleration. So it's still continuing. So, it's, so that's a continuance, even though there is a change in the actual speed of the particle each time you observe it. Now, act and event, he says, are practical concepts, and the distinction between them is a practical distinction. From a purely theoretical point of view, both are merely apprehended changes, perhaps changes in a, visu in a visual field. A change is, in itself, as apprehended neither an act or event. And by that he means, you know, you might just substitute one appearance for the other. And to call either an act or event is to refer to it beyond it, you know, to, to refer to something that produces it. No inspection of a change, however minute and careful, will of itself determine whether it was done or whether it merely happened, right? In a word, to call anything an event or an act is to refer beyond it, to some other expenditure of energy that came from somewhere else. Apart from such practical reference, it is neither one or the other, neither act nor event, it merely is. We express a distinction between acts and events, therefore, if we say, for an event there is a cause, for an act there is a reason. The explanation of an event is the discovery of the cause which produced it. The explanation of an act is the discovery of the reason for its performance. Since distinction of act and event is a principle of ultimate metaphysical classification, we must recognize that the distinction between reason and cause is also a distinction. Again, so we, we have a cause. You know, no act can have a cause, no event or reason. Now, the concept of cause is inherently self-contradictory. It is the conception of an agent, like God, that is not an agent, the negation of agency. In other words, the cause turns out merely to be another event, which must be referred to another cause. An infinite regress of this process goes on, right? This is what is meant when people say that a causal exp explanation only tells us how things happen, not why. Or better still, it describes the course of events without explaining it. A law of nature, then, is a pattern of continuance. And the discovery of such laws is the discovery of such patterns in our experience with the other. To say a group of phenomenon that it obeys a law is to assert that it contains a pattern of change which recurs without change. Right. Isn't that interesting? To say that nature in general obeys laws or that all phenomenon occur in accordance with laws is to assert that nature is the continuant or the non-agent and temporal existence. So having said all of this, McMurray concludes with a warning. Firstly, the substitution of the idea of law for the idea of cause and science does not solve the causal dilemma. It excludes it from consideration by avoiding the question, which requires a causal answer. What is the cause of the process is not a senseless question unless we're prepared to deny that the process ever had a beginning. The notion of cause by that of law is not properly a substitution. It defines a different mode of abstraction you know, isolating something differently. Secondly, since the worlds in which, we're, which are isolated by physics or biology are imaginary or ideal worlds, we have no ground for asserting that the laws that science formulates apply without qualification to the actual world in which we live. He gives an, idea, he gives an example. He says, we, we know that the water is purely H2O, but you're never going to find pure H2O anywhere. It's even hard to produce in the laboratory, right? Mm -hmm. There's always contaminants in it. There's always outside things affecting it. Okay. That, and that's what constitutes reality. And this is interesting. Finally, the continuant has no future. Time, as we have seen, is a form of action. 
Action distinguishes past from future as a determinant, as a determinant and the undetermined, respectively. The determinant is the past, and the continuant is already completely determined all the time. The future which we predict of it, the continuant, is really our future as agents. Having known the past, we shall remember it when we see it again, and what we shall see is what we have already seen. If this is never completely so, it is because the continuant is itself an ideal object. In actual experience, it's the negative aspect of action, and thus it, it gains a relation to real time which in its own right it does not possess. Or in other words, and this is my words now, time as projected into the past and future by people does not really exist. Only the present exists. There's no past as an existent. There's no future as an existent. The past is what is determined. The future is the indeterminate. The present is the point of action, and action is that which exists. How all this applies to McMurray's view of human behavior is through habit, and he suggests, which I'll have to save for a future discussion, <laughs> that human behavior itself should be viewed as a continuant. The habits we form being the recurring pattern of human existence that should be studied in the same way science studies recurrent patterns in nature. And he, sees, he doesn't see that being done. So he says to act is to make something other than it would have been if we had not determined it. In knowing an object, we make no difference to it. In acting upon it, we do make a difference to it. Now our actions, as events in the, wor in the word we know, must be as completely determined, in the world we know, must be as completely determined as everything else. But in action, we pre presuppose that we determine the world by our actions. The correlative of this freedom is that the world in which we determine the action must be indeterminate, capable of being, a, being given a structure that it does not already possess. We can only know a determinate world. We can only act in an indeterminate world. Therefore, if we really do act, our freedom of will is not an illusion. The world in which we live must be unknowable, the future. Or in other words, freedom is real, and we can change the world in which we lived. In which we live. We can change an is to an ought. But we can only do it today. We can't do it yesterday, and we can't do it tomorrow, because tomorrow never comes. Today is right now, our only point of action, and therefore, our only point of existence. We'll have to save that discussion for the future, which does not exist, except <laughs> as an expectation that it will exist. What well, was a timeless discussion there, Bob? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's it. We've got to go. Join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bed. What was that? Um, uh, 11.14 ship time, Dave. No, Harley, what was that flash? We've broken the light barrier 22 hours early. Uh, is everyone all right? I can't do it. I can't cope. We're going at the speed of light. My bottle's gone. <laughs> Harley, is everyone all right? No, I'm not. I thought I could navigate at light speed, but I just can't wrap my head round it. <laughs> Gordon Bennett, that was a close one. <laughs> Holly, what's the problem? You're supposed to have an IQ of 6,000, aren't you? Look, we're travelling faster than the speed of light. That means by the time we see something, we've already passed through it. Even with an IQ of 6,000, it's still brown trousers time. 